Yo, 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 what is good, everybody? Welcome back to another episode. We're we're trudging along through Ephesians 5. We are just two verses away from getting into some very, very fun topics. But I don't want to make it seem like the things we're talking about today are not going to be good because I really enjoyed going through this particular episode and studying for it. If you missed last week, we started off talking about what it looks like to live a wise life. We, we talked all about the wise things, what it means to be unwise. We got real in-depth. It's a great episode. But that verse where Paul says, therefore, don't walk as the unwise do, but, but walk as a wise person, that's a part of a triad of opposites where Paul is contrasting the ways of our old self and the old humanity versus the ways of our new self. And so we're going to touch on the the last two parts of this triad of, of contrasting opposites that Paul is touching on here. Once again, the first part is be wise and not unwise. And we'll hop into the last two in this episode. Uh, before we get into it, I hope every single one of y'all enjoyed your Easter weekend celebrating the death and resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, it, it, I'm recording this uh, just a couple days after Easter, and we should all be very thankful for the, the gift of grace that Jesus gave us. And uh, we, we shouldn't just be celebrating that on Easter. It should be a constant celebration and, and thankfulness that we harbor because of the gift that, that Jesus has given us. But today we're going to focus in on the distinction between foolishness and discernment and the nuance of what it means to be drunk with wine versus being filled with the Spirit. That I've heard some, some various uh, pastors and teachers kind of go a little bit into the weird sections of spiritual gifts and how we act that out because of a misunderstanding of the contrast that Paul is making. So we're going to get into this. We're going to go through verses 17 through 18 today. I'm going to start by reading verses 15 since we covered that last week, just so we can understand this triad of of contrasting opposites that Paul is doing. So Ephesians 5 verses 15 through 18, Paul says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. All right, like we always do, we're going to break this down verse by verse and then go through it. So verse 17, Paul says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. All right, so this is the the second part of the triad of opposites that Paul lays out here showing how the old self, our self without Christ, differs from our new self, our new self that we put on because of Christ. And he ties foolishness with the lack of understanding the will of God. Now, at risk of sounding like a broken record, I won't get on my soapbox again regarding the importance of knowing Scripture, because we covered this last week, and The TLDR is this, you cannot know or follow God or know what God's will is without first knowing his word. 
the very word that he revealed his will and his character in. And with that being said, knowing God's will is essential for our personal lives and the choices that we make. You know, many of us pray that God will guide us and show us his will when it comes to, you know, life decisions. Uh, Oftentimes, we will pray, oh God, you know, uh, help me know what job I'm supposed to take, you know, uh, give me wisdom to know what I should say to my friend, or give me wisdom to know if I should buy this car, or, you know, we, we pray for guidance, and we pray to understand God's will, oftentimes when it comes to things that are just choices that God has given us the freedom to make. And oftentimes, if we continue to just spend time in God's word and truly come to know him and and know his character on a deeper level, you'll find that it'll be easier to discern how God would want you to act in a given situation. And, And this may sound weird because you may be thinking, well, you know, the Bible doesn't talk about uh, what God, what 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 jobs God wants you to choose? But when you understand and and meditate on and are deeply inundated with God's Word, you know Him better. And when you know Him better, you know more and more often what His will is. But also, when it comes to things like, oh, what job should I take? There very well may be times where, ultimately. God doesn't care. And I don't mean he doesn't care in in the sense that he doesn't care about you. What I mean is a lot of times there are decisions that God has given us the freedom and agency to make. And and oftentimes when it comes down to what job should I take or should I date this person or this person and and both of these things seem like, like good options. They both seem like, you know, oh, this job will make me happy and this job will make me happy or this person's a good person and they love God or this person's a good person and they love God. And oftentimes God is just saying, hey, <laughs> if, you, if you know me and you know my word enough, you'll know the things that are good or bad for you. So I'm giving you agency here to, to make a decision and trust ultimately that, that I am the Lord and that my will will come to pass regardless. But but this is not what Paul is focusing on here when it comes to understanding what the will of the Lord is. I think oftentimes uh, in mo- modern-day Christians will read verse 17 here and say, oh, uh, I'm not supposed to be foolish. I'm supposed to understand what the will of the Lord is. And they equate that with understanding what God's will is in every single situational choice that you may make in your life. And although that may be helpful, that's not Paul's focus here. Paul's focus here, when it comes to understanding what the will of the Lord is, centers more around the moral choices that we make that ultimately tie into how we are living for Jesus rather than what house God wants me to buy. And remember, the flow of Paul's thinking here, when we look back at the preceding verses in this chapter, what is Paul telling us here in Ephesians 5? Paul is saying, hey, look, there are people who are sexually immoral. They're greedy and impure people. There are those who use their words to slander and joke in a crude way. And these are the things that with, that that those 
without Jesus actively partaking. And there's a real danger that you as a follower of Jesus could join them in these dark acts. So don't. Don't do what they do, but instead expose and convict them of their dark ways. Call out their sin as what it is. Sin. Because those who live this sin-filled life will not find salvation. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. And because of this, you need to be careful with how you walk. Be wise instead of unwise. Don't be foolish, but know what God's will is. What Paul is doing is he is tying back wisdom and the understanding of God's will to living a morally pure life and not partaking in the evil acts of the world. So when Paul says, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of God is, he's tying back understanding the will of God to all of these wrong, dark acts that lead to missing out on inheriting God's kingdom. So when it comes to, what, well, what is God's will? How do I understand what God's will is? In part, Paul has already given you an understanding of what God's will is in the beginning parts of chapter 5, and namely that is to live like Christ. Don't, don't indulge the desires of your flesh. Don't keep living like you did when you were a sinner without Jesus, but walk in the light. Follow what Jesus says and don't partake in the evil dark things that everyone else is doing. So, so understanding God's will in part is understanding the morality that God has given his followers. And I wish we could all see how crucially important scripture is when it comes to guiding our view of morality. Because if we, if we don't have an objective standard of morality, an objective standard that transcends time and human opinion, then our moral virtues become subjective. And therefore, they necessarily become corrupt. This is how we can get so many quote-unquote Christians who outright ignore or reject the clear views of morality that is given by God in His Word simply because it does not coincide with their subjective view of good and evil. This is how we can get a culture where men all of a sudden can be women and babies can be sacrificed to the God of autonomy and liberation, and marriage can be redefined to mean loving anyone and everyone. And don't mistake this as a political stance, because this is a biblical stance. The truth of the matter is there are clear moral teachings in God's Word that are objective for all people at all times, and Christians en masse have understood this up until five minutes ago. And to reject God's will that is revealed through his word is to, as Paul says, be foolish. This is how we should be understanding Paul's command to not be foolish, but instead understand the will of the Lord. The will of the Lord is laid out to us all throughout scripture. But when we choose to define good and evil, on our own terms, disaster always follows. We see this in the first three pages of the Bible. Uh, flip to Genesis, and in the first three pages, it, this is made very clear. In Genesis chapter 1, God looks at his creation, and he defines it as good 
nine individual times. God did this, he saw it as good. God did this, he saw it as good. God put this there and he saw it as good. God populated the earth, he thought it as good. God made man and woman in. In the image of God, he created them. Man and female, he created them. And God sees this as good. But then in chapter two, he sees something as not good. He sees that man is alone. And God says, this is not good. So when God is the one bringing about the moral judgments, it brings us a flourishing earth filled with life and beauty, and it also brings about human companionship. But in Genesis 3, humanity decides for the first time to define what is good on their own terms instead of relying on God. And what happens? Eve looks at the tree that God explicitly said was not good, and she, in her own eyes, decided that it was good. And it led to humanity's expulsion from the garden, which puts us where we are today. You don't have to read very far in scripture to see how replacing God's will for our own will ultimately leads to death and destruction. And this is precisely what Paul is trying to tell us when he warns us against walking in a foolish way. When we read verse 17, we might as well just have the picture of of Adam and Eve deciding what is good in their own eyes, explicitly going against the will of God. They acted foolishly. They went against the moral code that God had set out and explicitly told them was wrong. And they decided for themselves that it was actually good. And it led to them missing out on being in the the active dwelling place of God, being in paradise. And this is exactly what Paul is trying to convey. That those who are sexually immoral and and greedy and have foolish talking and, and partake in a habitual manner in all of these dark sinful acts, they are living and they are acting out their own view of morality that explicitly goes against the will and the morality that God has placed in his word. And because of this, it leads them to death. And this is what Paul is trying to help us avoid. He's trying to help us actually attain life. And the only way that we can discern the will of God is to first understand who he is, what he has said, and what he asks of us. And the only way that we can deeply know this is by reading his word. On to verse 18, Paul says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. All right, so in this triad of contrasts, we have, we've had being wise instead of unwise understanding God's will instead of being foolish. And now, for for the third and final part of this triad, we have the filling of the Spirit instead of being drunk with wine. And what exactly does this mean? And this is an important question to ask because oftentimes this verse gets taken to mean that we're supposed to be drunk in the Spirit. I mean, some of you may have heard this before. I definitely have that you know, oh, Paul says that we're not supposed to be drunk with wine, 
So that must mean instead we're supposed to be drunk in the spirit. And, and this leads to people acting in really weird ways, exhibiting the same actions of being drunk on alcohol, but instead they're claiming that they're being drunk in the Holy Spirit, and that's what's causing this behavior. And nowhere does Paul imply that this is the proper understanding of his words. And one reason why we can deduce that this is not what Paul means is that if Paul doesn't want you to be drunk, with wine. He never says that drinking wine in and of itself is wrong. It's the excess of the wine, right? It is the it is the consequence of the drunkenness of the wine that Paul is calling out because what happens when when you're drunk? You lose control of your cognitive faculties. You lose control of your ability to have sound reasoning, to have a sound mind. To, to understand the things that are going on around you. It causes you to act out and do things that otherwise you would not in a controlled state. This is what happens when, when you're drunk and intoxicated. Paul is not saying to also be intoxicated and losing your ability to control yourself and be able to think rationally and all of these things with the Spirit. You'd be getting the same wrong results, it would just be a different agent that is causing them. So that's not what Paul is trying to say here. So what we need to do is we should first point out that Paul is not contrasting similarities, meaning Paul is not saying that drunkenness is fine, but the source of the drunkenness is what matters. That's not what Paul is doing. Paul is contrasting influences, right? The outside influence of wine disintegrates your ability to make wise choices and discern God's will. But the outside influence of the Spirit fills you up with the good things that help you understand God's will and walk in a wise way. And the question we must ask then is, what are we being filled with? Now, this question may not seem too complicated, but there actually is some debate on what the believer is being filled with here. Some say that the believer is being filled with the Spirit, and they just leave it at that. Now, let's be clear, there's many more scriptures throughout the New Testament that say that we're filled with the Holy Spirit. So I'm not saying that we're not filled with the Holy Spirit. I just don't think that's what Paul is saying here in this particular instance. So with that being said, others argue that because the original text in the Greek lacks an accusative and a genitive noun, that it should be read that we are to be filled by the Spirit. And this is a small distinction with a larger difference in understanding, because if we are being filled by the Spirit, this implies that there are things given to believers by the Holy Spirit that we are being filled by. So with that in mind, let's look at how Paul uses this this idea of filling and fullness. Let's look at this filling and fullness language throughout this letter to the Ephesians. And I think it will give us some clues as to how the Spirit is filling us, how this is taking place. So in chapter 1, 22 through 23, it says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In chapter 3, 16 through 19, says that according to the riches of his glory, 
he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In chapter 4, verses 9 through 13, Paul says, In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we see this, this constant language of filling and fullness. So, so there's a theme going on here of filling and being full, and this is taking place in the believer. And then here in Ephesians 5, Paul says, hey, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled by the Spirit. So what's going on here? Well, there's a great quote from Peter Thomas O'Brien in his book, The Letter to the Ephesians, the Pillar New Testament Commentary. And I want to read a quote. It's on page 391. It says this, quote, In the light of these earlier instances of the fullness language, then we conclude that the content with which believers have been or are being filled is the fullness of the triune God or of Christ. No other text in Ephesians or elsewhere in Paul focuses specifically on the Holy Spirit as the content of this fullness. It is better then to understand Ephesians 5.18 in terms of the Spirit's mediating the fullness of God in Christ to believers. To be admonished, be filled by the Spirit then, means that Paul's readers are urged to let the Spirit change them more and more into the image of God in Christ a notion which is consistent with Pauline theology elsewhere, end quote. I really love the last part of that quote, that the goal of being filled by the Spirit is to be more like the image of God. That's the end goal. It's so that believers can start to look and act like the image of God that we were created to be. And this is what Paul is working towards. In chapters 4 and 5, we said this multiple times that Paul has given us practical applications of how we can actually start walking out our belief in Jesus. He calls out the sinful behaviors that explicitly hinder our ability to properly image God and properly live how Jesus calls us to live. We cannot live out the image of God if we are partaking in sexual immorality. We cannot live out the image of God if we're being greedy and if we're being covetous and jealous and envious. We cannot live out the image of God if we're letting foul things come out of our mouth. We cannot live out the image of God if we are partaking in these sinful dark acts that have been explicitly called out as sinful. We cannot live out the fullness of our new selves that Paul told us in Ephesians 4 to put on. We cannot live out being the, the new dwelling place, the new temple for God if we are partaking in all of these things. That is why Paul, in this triad of 
contrasting opposites tells us to be wise instead of unwise. Why? Because God is not unwise. How can we live out the image of God if we're doing something antithetical to who God is, right? So we're called to be wise. We're called to not be foolish, but to discern God's will. If we're supposed to be God's image, well, it would follow that we should at least know what God wants. And then we're also called to not be drunk with wine, but instead to continue being filled by the Spirit. The Spirit is the agent that fills us with the very things that we need in order to be God's image here on earth. Paul is calling us to to be a completely new creation apart from our old selves. And this starts with understanding God's will and having a knowledge of who God is and what He wants from us.